Today is March 24th, 2021. A shooter in Colorado kills 10 people in a grocery store. The Biden administration works to start getting his infrastructure plan pushed through Congress. And U.S. officials call into question the AstraZeneca vaccine. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. We got another fantastic episode for you here today, bright and early on this Wednesday morning, bringing you all the best news and insights from both sides of the aisle. And y'all, I can say with 100% confidence, this is the best podcast that we have done so far. You heard it here first. We're bringing you all the good and all the bad from the left, all the good and all the bad from the right. And we're doing our best to find that sweet, sweet truth that lies right there in the middle. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and hop on into our first story of the day, story number one. So for our first story of the day, uh, it is a pretty tragic story. Unfortunately, uh, this is the second one of these that I've had to cover within the past week, but there was another mass shooting this time in Colorado in a grocery store. And uh, 10 people were killed. One of them was a police officer that was actually the first officer to arrive there on the scene. Uh, The authorities said that the man got into the grocery store at about 2.30 in the afternoon. He started firing uh, in the parking lot and then made his way inside and continued to open fire and indiscriminately shoot people all throughout the grocery store. It was an absolutely horrendous scene. Um, So let's go ahead and hop on in. Uh, this This is reporting done by today. Uh, covering to, to get a little bit of the details around what happened. Look, there's shots ringing out and panic setting in. There's a shooter, active shooter. Get away. Get back. Shoppers going through a normal afternoon. We had to go to King Supers to buy vanilla wafers. <laughs> I just nearly got killed for getting a, a, a soda, you know, and a bag of chips. That turned into a deadly scene. And then he shot towards us like uh, we could feel it and uh, we just kept going. We just ran and uh, there was somebody laying in the road. Multiple people down, so far one officer down. The district attorney says the alleged shooters in custody after 10 people were killed, including an 11 year veteran police officer. We know of uh, 10 fatalities uh, at the scene including one of our Boulder PD officers. Officer Talley responded to the scene, was the first on the scene, and he was fatally shot. All right. So uh, the Colorado police uh, actually, as of late afternoon, released the man's name. And following the protocol that I normally keep on my podcast, I am not going to say the name of the man. Uh, However, uh, it does look like there was a video also released of what many presume to be the shooter at the time being escorted out of the grocery store by the police. He was in his underwear for some reason. He had blood running all the way down his leg. It was later found out that he was actually shot in the leg during one of the during the shootout. I am not totally sure why he didn't have any clothes on. I mean, the guy was literally just in his boxers, like no shoes, no pants, no shirt or anything, he was just in his boxers. And I don't know if that's how he actually shot the whole store up or what happened. There are not a lot of details that have come out around that yet. Um, But 
It does look like it was a man likely in his early 20s who decided to go in with a rifle and start shooting people all over the store. So many people, stories have come out of people that were hunkered down behind trash cans and other things, uh, doing anything they can to find some sort of cover, while another couple... I was there, actually took their children uh, and took cover inside of a broom closet. Uh, The scene was absolutely mass chaos. Uh, And then once all the police got there, they they surrounded the entirety of the building, many of them in full tactical gear and camo, uh, holding their assault rifles, basically just ready to go in and storm the building because they had no idea really what all was going on inside. So it is unclear at this point what would have caused the attack. It appears to be completely random at this point. There's not really enough detail around who the man is, why he decided to actually do this, and it is unfortunately not the first mass shooting that has happened in Colorado. For some reason, Colorado as a state kind of appears to be a hot spot, you know, somewhat for some of these types of shootings. Um but I, the unfortunate thing is, and I think where the story for us begins today is This, like many of the shootings and other tragedies normally do, uh, has already started to spark calls from both sides on how to deal with gun violence. Many voices are coming in very, very strongly uh, with incredibly emphatic opinions about the issue. Um, And it's unfortunate because oftentimes people use tragic events like this one to try and push political points and have their very, very loud opinion heard uh, before a lot of people even get to mourn actually what happened at the place that it happened, and it's just not a great look. So the left side of the aisle, uh, so the left has pushed and advocated for restrictions of firearms for a pretty long time now, and actually is starting to gr- become a growing pillar on the left side of the aisle Um that wants to see more laws and restrictions put into place around not only the sale of firearms, but the ownership of firearms, what type of firearms someone is allowed to possess, when they're allowed to possess them in terms of their age, uh, when and if they can and should be taken away from people, um, especially in states where firearm ownership is incredibly prevalent. So Colorado is a state where there actually is a, a, fair, a high, fairly high degree of uh, gun ownership. Because really the vast majority of Colorado is very, very Republican, very right-leaning. And we'll get into a little bit about, you know, kind of what the right views about gun ownership as well. But uh, you primarily see extremely high gun ownership in area, legal gun ownership at least, within areas uh, of very, very strong Republican support. So... Uh, You've heard uh, many of the Democratic politicians, especially over the past 15 to 20 years, standing up on a stage and talking about the need to get rid of assault rifles or the need for red flag laws or uh, that there need to be more and more thorough background checks. And unfortunately, many of the politicians on the left side of the aisle uh, that are really kind of pushing for these sorts of laws don't actually know enough about firearms in order to have the difficult and incredibly nuanced conversation that needs to be had, especially about the repercussions that a lot of these various laws would actually have, uh, not only in America and how it relates to the Constitution, but also in the reaction to laws like this uh, in and throughout the United States as well, because gun ownership, uh, as many people view it, uh, is is a pillar of American democracy. So, 
the right side of the aisle. The right is unapologetically in support of full and free firearm ownership. Uh, this is absolutely one of the, uh, one of, I think one of the tenets of Republicanism, especially right now, that tends to glue the entirety of the Republican Party together. I think that you would be very, very hard pressed to find a Republican that did not say that they were in wholehearted support of the Second Amendment. I would be, especially if you found a Republican that was that voted oftentimes a straight ticket down the Republican side of the aisle. Uh, you would be very, it would be very difficult to find one that says, "Ah, well, you know, I agree with everything about Republicanism, but I don't support uh, a lot of the pillars at, 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 with regarding the Second Amendment and gun laws within the United States." So. Granted, this doesn't necessarily mean that all Republicans completely agree about what the laws should be or if there should be laws around firearms in the United States, but what it does mean is that most all Republicans are going to be very weary of any politician that wants to remove weapons at all or talks about gun buybacks or more restrictive uh, policies or laws or legislation around the purchasing of firearms. So, the rights response uh, to tragedy, and when I say the rights, I don't mean the right response. I mean the right side of the aisle response to tragedies like this normally argues that if more good people would have been carrying firearms in the store, then they would have been able to protect themselves better and the people around them better, and, and they would have done it much quicker than any you know than it took for any police officer to be able to get there uh, because. The police officer can't, you know, be in two places at one time. They actually have to drive to, they have to get to the places where horrible and tragic events like this are happening. So where, where's the good and where's the bad on both, both sides of those arguments? Okay. So the first, um, there are truths to both sides here. Uh, there of course is a huge problem with gun violence in the United States as a whole. I think that is absolutely undeniable. Uh, and I don't just mean mass shootings here either, although these also tend to happen way too often as well. Um, but there's also a problem, um, you know, I, let me, I guess I can finish that point. So I don't just mean mass shootings. There are an incredible amount of homicides that happen, especially in large inner city areas uh, that have a, an abundance of violent crime that take place. And oftentimes it is uh, perpetrated by people using guns as their primary mode for burglarizing or attacking people uh, that they want to be able to steal from or kill or whatever it may be. Okay, and that isn't necessarily just people that are, are legally holding guns. I understand that a lot of those people are illegally possessing the guns as well. Um, but and that kind of gets into my second point. There's also a huge problem with really a lot of bad actors having the opportunity to get their hands on a weapon and then use them for absolutely terrible things. So it appears to be supported by the data that the majority of guns that have been used in mass shootings or have been used in some sort of homicide or killing in the United States. Um, normally tend to be obtained but through illegal means. Um, but there are also a good portion of them that are used, you know, that were purchased legally. And that's a huge gap. That's a huge problem in the laws that we have within our United States around what we're going to do in order to be able to solve the problem of gun violence, specifically in America. So, there's also no doubt still a problem that the people that go out and legally, you know, are purchasing uh, firearms, are passing the background checks, are getting past the FBI at times uh, when they're known to be a huge concern, and then proceeding to go out and absolutely wreak havoc upon innocent people. So uh, with all of that, there's also a huge problem with the left 
losing a ton of credibility when many of the politicians that are pushing restrictive gun legislation clearly have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. And I think this is what causes the left side of the aisle to lose, I think, a lot of the arguments around uh, the gun issues and the violence issues in the United States because you have people like Beto O'Rourke or you have people uh, like the Cal I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the California po representative politician uh, that came up and was talking about a, a gun that could shoot uh, 30 rounds in half of a second right which is absolutely ridiculous like they don't understand or can't define what an assault rifle is they think that the ar and the ar-15 gun stands for assault rifle they can't understand the difference or define what a magazine is or how that may be different from a clip they grossly overestimate or have absolutely no idea what the firing speed of weapons are and they don't know the difference between a semi-automatic versus an automatic weapon and I think as a result, they lose a ton of credibility with people on the right because you're having conversations with people that want to limit the possession of and the use of firearms in the United States, and they're not educated about the subject. So um, I, I understand and I see the need for wanting to uh, restrict the gun ownership from bad actors, right? And I also understand the need and the want from the right side of the aisle for wanting to uh, make it easier for the good actors to be able to actively possess and defend themselves with weapons, right? Um, and much of the argument on the right side of the aisle starts to break down a bit, especially because of uh, you know, depending on your definition of or how you interpret the Second Amendment, especially if you're moving towards an originalist interpretation of what the Second Amendment says, uh, there are a lot of people that legitimately believe on the right side of the aisle that people should be able to possess the exact same weapons that uh, anybody in the military should possess because at the time that the Second Amendment was written, you could do that. They were allowing you to have the same weapons that the military had. Um, and, you know, I think that that in and of itself kind of falls apart that's ridiculous like to, to think that you can have citizenry that can possess uh you know grenade launchers or any type of rpg or you know get a 30 cow and mount it on the top of their forerunner if they want to and if they have the money to afford it that's a little bit ridiculous right so the conversation is obviously very very nuanced and it's one, it is a conversation that needs bipartisan coming together and communicating about in order to be able to solve the problem. There needs to be education on both sides of the aisle about why the other side views guns and views the problem the way that they do. And in order to, you know, basically find a response that upholds the Constitution while at the same time protecting people and protecting the politicians' constituencies all around the country. So, and of course, eventually reducing the number of homicides and mass shootings that happen in the United States because it is tragic to be able to, to have to sit here and talk about a story of another mass shooting, you know, what, two in one week. So, with all of that having been said, that is the end of our first story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our second story, story number two. So for our second story of the day, Biden gears up to try and get his infrastructure plan pushed through Congress. So President Joe Biden is signaling, signaling that his next big push in Congress will be for legislation implementing the transportation, infrastructure, and green energy elements of his, quote, Build Back Better campaign a platform. Uh, reportedly, it has a potential price tag of $3 trillion, which is a lot of dollars. Um, and, you know, he 
Hasn't totally outlined exactly what he's going to be doing, but he has said that this is where he wants to go. So let's go ahead and hop on in real quick. This is CBS reporting on this uh, yesterday. Turning now to a massive potential new spending push from the Biden administration. We're talking about reports of up to $3 trillion, that's with a T, to be pumped into the U.S. economy. That's if the proposal's backers can get their way on that. Nancy Cordes is at the White House with more on this story. Nancy, good morning to you. Sure seems like a tall order with everything that's going on there these days. Gail, it is a very ambitious plan. It has to do with infrastructure, the next big item on the Biden agenda. We're told that within the next couple of days, President Biden's economic advisors are going to be briefing him on a proposal that they say will create jobs. And it involves spending about a trillion dollars reportedly on improvements to roads, bridges, even the cellular network. That's the physical infrastructure piece. And then more money would go to investments like free community college, universal pre-K, and paid family leave. They call that human infrastructure. So this is a very aggressive plan. And the challenge for Democrats here is that the Senate is so closely split that it's just as hard to push this through without bipartisan support as it is to pass other big priorities. Okay, so... Uh, Biden has talked about wanting to get this plan pushed through for a while now, but he hasn't really laid out how he would be able to do it. He obviously is going to have the backing of the Democrats. However, the Republicans would throw that out as an absolute non-starter with that price tag, especially with the tikes, with the tax hikes that would likely have to come along with it in order to pay for a bill that size. Um, so Pelosi came out and said they are working to put together a plan that would not only fund roads, bridges, and mass transit, but also deliver on Biden's vow to address climate change and also address, you know, probably some type of education spending as well. Uh, universal 4K, like was uh, mentioned in uh, uh, the video just now. And I think a key, but I think the, probably one of the biggest key pieces to this plan is going to be, you know, the whole going green, right? Which a lot of Republicans, I think, are going to push back very, very hard against. And honestly, even a few Democrats will as well, depending how far the measures go. Uh, for example, Senator Joe Manchin, who is uh, out of West Virginia, very, very moderate Democrat. He's kind of like your standard blue dog caucus dem Democrat, uh, saying that he basically wants a new spending bill to be both bipartisan and paid for with tax increases. However, tax increases are going to be very, very difficult to be, you know, stomached by the Republicans and to be passed, especially with the Republicans holding, uh, the, the the amount of seats that they do in the Senate. So this really will be the first time that Joe Biden will be tested on whether or not he can pass bipartisan legislation. Biden right now is being credited, and he is, of course, taking credit for the gigantic COVID stimulus package that was passed just a few weeks ago. However, in all reality... It really was just the House and the Senate Democrats cramming legislation through as hard as they possibly can with reconciliation, which, you know, was done really in the face of any type of bipartisan support, like purposefully excluding pretty much anything that the Republicans would have wanted. Um, uh, however, you know, this can't be done through budget reconciliation. They, they can't. Like, if you're going to pass a gigantic spending and infrastructure bill like this, you can't do that through budget reconciliation. They're going to have to pass it through normal legislative means. And it's almost like they're going to have to do something, do do a whole bunch of stuff, how the Constitution outlines for it to be done. Like, the Dem Democrats can't and shouldn't be able to just pass stuff that literally half of the country that is representative, represented by people in the Senate may not want, Right. 
So this is the whole reason why the the U.S. you know United States legislative branch is structured the way that it is. But um, Biden is set to give his first address to a joint session of Congress here in the next few weeks, and many are expecting for him to kind of roll out and give his plan for what his legis uh, what this legislation can and should be according to Biden, and really kind of ask for and make a push for some type of bipartisan help on getting this bill passed. Um, he's also asking, supposedly, for various senators and representatives to help him in the construction of this bill, uh, you know, kind of asking them to put forth their wishes and the red lines that they would want to draw as well. And it's supposed to be, or according to what officials have said, uh, a bipartisan coalition of senators and representatives as well. So, will that happen? We don't know. Uh, Pete Buttigieg is also set to give the first preview of the plan tomorrow in Congress. Uh, he's going to go and testify before the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Uh, this will also be Buttigieg's first test as well. As kind of the head of the Department of Transportation, he's been somewhat silent since being confirmed to the position. Um, but you know, he he's expected to kind of come in and hopefully have his stuff together in order to be able to present this bill. And I think that a lot of Democrats are really kind of looking for Pete Buttigieg to kind of be one of those uh, core future members of the Democratic Party that will kind of lead them into the promised land. Um, so. Uh, Peter DeFazio, out of, a Democrat out of Oregon, who is uh, the panel's chairman, so the panel of the House Transportation Infrastructure Infrastructure Committee, um, and he said that Pete Buttigieg should, quote, eat his Wheaties before the session because he's going to have a lot of questions for what they want to do. So for a little bit of context here, in the last session of Congress, Peter uh, DeFazio uh who I was just speaking about out of Oregon, wrote up an infrastructure bill that passed in the House but actually died in the Senate. And that bill was for $450 billion. So this $3 trillion price tag is significantly, significantly higher than the one that was passed in the last session of Congress. So there's no doubt that we at this point have moved past the territory of thinking that the government rolling out trillion dollar plans is too much money. I mean, I think for a long time, the trillion dollars, like trillion was the T word in government and within politics, especially on Capitol Hill. And the thought of the government spending that much money on something was absolutely nonsensical. However, now it almost seems like the plan isn't worth anything unless it, you know, with what it costs starts with the fat T on the front. So, U.S. government seems to think that there's just no end to the pocketbook at all. Uh, the only way, though, that I think that this thing will pass is if, one, it is significantly smaller and the Republicans actually get some type of writing and help basically help to write what this bill actually looks like and they get some of the things that they want if it actually is somewhat bipartisan or if the Democrats vote to end the filibuster, which, of course, is something that they have tossed around a bit and are trying to get pushed through. They're literally just waiting on Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin to say that they'll vote for it. Um, so if they end up ending the filibuster, they will definitely push this thing through as fast as they possibly can. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our second story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our third story and last story, story number three. So the third story of the day is around the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, another player in the vaccine market that has been trying their hardest to break into getting their vaccine approved in America is the British pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca. Uh, they have produced their own vaccine. It is also a two-dose vaccine. 
And they have come under a lot of heat over the past couple of weeks because there have been a ton of questions around the efficacy rate of their vaccine and supposed clotting that is caused in the blood of people that have gotten the AstraZeneca vaccine over the past month or so. So about two weeks ago, reports started to surface that there were a lot of people that are having trouble with these blood clots all in and throughout Europe after receiving the, the vaccine. This raised a lot of concerns in the European Union where it is currently approved for distribution. So they halted its distribution and actually putting it into arms until they were able to do a little bit more research around it and understand maybe if it actually was causing any sort of blood clotting. Um, they kind of got to a place where they felt like it was not the cause of blood clotting. Uh, so it is back open for distribution. Uh, and it also including in the United Kingdom, where actually more than 11 million doses have been given out. So it's trying to get over into the United States because the United States is a very, very big market for people that are trying to get the vaccine. But the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases said that it has been informed by an independent data monitoring board working with AstraZeneca in the United States trials that the drug company might have used out-of-date information in its public disclosure of the vaccine's effectiveness. So this was after, earlier this week, AstraZeneca released that it had been found to be 79% effective in preventing symptomatic disease COVID-19. In other words, though, the data that they use may not have been completely correct in the most up-to-date data that they could have used when they were telling the United States population that it had a high efficacy rate and that it should be good to be used, okay? Overall, around an 80% efficacy rate is pretty good. However, it doesn't even come close to some of the other shots that are being handed out by like Pfizer or Moderna, or even uh, I think in some cases in some countries, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine as well. So uh, it also doesn't, you know, speak very well to a lot of the other variants that are starting to emerge across the world uh, and make their way into the United States as well. So, so far within the past week, a pretty rough variant and originated in Brazil, appeared in New York for the first time. So there are a lot of questions around how these vaccines are going to be able to deal with and fight off some of the more maybe strenuous variants on the body that are starting to appear from the coronavirus and having a lower efficacy rate starting out with just the regular novel coronavirus obviously is not going to be all that great for other variants that may come up as well. So I will say the standards that are set by the United States are normally a bit higher than the rest of the world. As much as our healthcare system gets absolutely crapped on on a regular basis, we do have very high standards for the level of care and safety that is required in the United States, which is why you've seen the vast majority of the vaccines that have been approved in other countries got approved much faster than they have been approved in the United States. So within the United States, it has to not only pass the tests and all the different trials and stuff uh, with the FDA in order to get, you know, any type of emergency use authorization, but it also has to pass the inspection of independent boards that give examinations as well, like the one that was given previously just for this AstraZeneca vaccine. So they have to pass a, a multitude of different tests. They have to jump through a multitude of different hoops in order to be able to get their stuff approved because the United States is like, listen, we're not going to let just anybody come in here and, and you know start vaccinating people all willy-nilly. We want to protect our people as much as we possibly can. So in this case, 
the difference in efficacy rates is likely only a few percent. So the board found that it was likely still between 70 to 79 percent. However, in the United States, having data that is even slightly off is a very big no-no, especially because this particular vaccine by AstraZeneca has already been called into question by some officials at the FDA earlier on in its trials that were happening in the United Kingdom. So one person fell ill during the trials of the vaccine in the UK, and AstraZeneca apparently did not follow up with that person quickly enough or inform the FDA quickly enough to let them know, which caused the FDA earlier this year uh, to be not too happy with AstraZeneca, or I should say late last year. So as a result, there will likely be a lot of people that refuse to take this vaccine now. There's a lot of cloudiness about whether or not it actually is as safe as some of the other ones out there, and especially in the U.S. where there already is a little bit of maybe apprehension towards getting the vaccine, probably far more than the vast majority of other countries, uh, the mistrust that's already there towards getting a COVID vaccine, and then you have uh, one that is handed out by a player that uh, there's a lot of maybe, you know, mistrust into how everything's actually been rolled out and if it's actually safe. I'd be surprised if Astra, if the AstraZeneca vaccine does very well in the United States at all. So all in all, though, I will say it does look like a lot of the vaccine rollout have been very, very successful. Close to 3 million people a day are now getting them. It looks like the numbers are continuing to climb in those daily doses being given out as well, with officials estimating that herd immunity could be reached by the summer. So Hopefully that actually happens because that would be great. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our third story and last story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on in to our last segment, probably one of the funnier segments we do. It's called, Bro, What? So for my bro what today, I would be remiss if I did not at least talk about Joe Biden falling up the stairs as he was entering an airplane within the last week. There have been, <laughs> the video itself is really not all that funny, but the memes have been unbelievable. I saw, <laughs> I saw a video where somebody uh, went through and f basically cut and edited a video of Donald Trump swinging and hitting a golf club and then the golf ball going and hitting Joe Biden in the leg, which <laughs> caused him to fall when he was walking up the stairs. It has been pretty hilarious, all the different memes that have happened. All right. And I'm not sitting here making fun of him. I realize that Joe Biden is pretty old. And at the end of the day, there's been a lot of people that have now called into the question, called into question the health of Joe Biden because he tripped when he was walking upstairs, which is ridiculous because just because you trip and fall, you'd be, all these people are acting like they've never tripped and fallen before, tripped and fallen before, which is, that's ridiculous. My wife, you know, tripped and dropped a place, plate of tacos just like two or three days ago because she ended up blowing out a slipper on the way up the stairs. It happens to everybody. My wife is perfectly young and healthy. Doesn't matter who you are. You can fall up and down stairs anytime. It's just going to happen. But my bro, what has got to be Joe Biden slipping because I'm not going to lie. The memes about it were hilarious. If you need a good chuckle, just go on YouTube and look up best Joe Biden falling memes and you will have a good couple of chuckles for a couple of minutes. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our show today. Thank you so much for stopping by and for checking us out. 
And thank you for listening in. If you are new, we hope that you come back. Obviously, we hope that you enjoyed the content. Please find me on Instagram at Split the Difference Podcast. I'm on Facebook and YouTube and my website at Split the Difference as well. SplitTheDifference.com for my website. Find me and give me some likes and subscribes and some five-star reviews because they go such a long way for helping me understand what kind of content to curate for y'all and also help me get in the ears of people that otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity to hear some of the stuff that I've say. So with all of that, remember y'all, we're going to do our best to stay level-headed. We are always going to be reasonable. And of course, we're going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.